you want to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and James was asking me what the, the text was, it's 2 Corinthians 13, 14, then I was saying you probably won't need to put it on, because everybody knows it. And when you get there, you will know, because we say this every Sunday, virtually, when we leave church. You might not be aware that when you're saying these words, you're actually quoting scripture. I don't know if everybody's aware of that, that the benediction, the blessing that we give to one another when we leave church is actually a verse from the Bible. It might not surprise you, but I'm not sure if everybody knew that. So hopefully everybody knows the text, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. I'm going to read just from verse 11. Paul's final greetings to the church at Corinth. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't know we've quite started that yet or finished with that. I'm not sure where we are with that. All the saints send their greetings. And Paul's prayer for those Christians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I didn't speak to Karen about what I was going to really be talking I gave her the verse and that was it and probably how she came up with that lovely song but she was doing a, a talk and was thinking she's basically been needing my introduction <laughs> to the sermon here uh, because I've got things that we need to, if we're going to grow in a healthy body so there are things that we do need one such thing is exercise isn't it? we need exercise I'm a member of the, the Living Well the, the leisure centre up at the Hilton Hotel there in Bells Hill I usually just, I don't, you can tell by looking at me, I'm not that serious at it. I usually go for a bit of a swim. But when you join, and I've done this more than once, I will confess, when you go to these places, you're invited to go up to the gym, you can join the gym, and I do it. I've done it two or three times, and you meet the instructor guy, and he takes a look at me, and he rolls his eyes a few times, and then he says, he comes up with a wee cart, and this is what we suggest for you. Maybe some cardio work on the, treadmill and the rowing machine and maybe you, you can certainly do a bit of the, the weights, the resistance training to build up those muscles and then maybe some uh, balance and stretching stuff to uh, get the posture in shape and, and strengthen your core and, and I've never followed it yet I have to say but all, all these things you, you need things to be a healthy body and then our, our diets you can't open a magazine or, or, a, or a paper supplement to do without being flooded with information and advice and guidance and, and what we need to eat for our bodies to be healthy and to grow, eat the red, the yellow, the green foods, our, our carbs, our proteins, our vitamins, what we shouldn't eat, what we should, things that we need for our bodies to grow. And so also, in a sense, for our spiritual bodies, so also for the spiritual body of the church, things that we need to grow and in a sense, that's really what Paul is, is talking about here in these little verses. 
Verse 14, Paul says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul there is spelling out the resources, what, what this fellowship needs in order to, to, to progress and to grow and to keep going as a fellowship. A wee bit of context here. It's the end of the second letter to the church at Corinth. You'll know it if you've been around church for any length of time. This, these letters are full of lots of issues. <laughs> Let's say Paul had a, a job with this fellowship. Lots of issues in it. And in his letters he tries to deal with them and encourage them and warn them and challenge them. And we're coming to the end of the second letter. The second letter is a lot more personal and powerful because Paul's been challenged personally. There's people in the church who have been criticising Paul as an apostle. He's really no use. <laughs> They've got super apostles coming into the church. And Paul's had to defend himself from this criticism. And he tells he's going to come and see them again for a third visit. And he worries that when he comes to find them, he says in chapter 12, there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. <sighs> Corinth had it all. Also a bit of sexual immorality thrown in, divisions, everything. And Paul's letters are here to encourage and to build up. He says more than one occasion, it's not my intention to tear down and destroy, it's my intention to build up and to strengthen you. Because Paul's desire for the church was that it would grow and it would keep going and it would thrive. And in verse 11, just as, a, as he comes to his very final greetings, Paul sort of sums up what's required. He says, I want you to aim for perfection. Now, I don't think Paul was thinking this church was going to be perfect. And you know the old adage, if you ever do find that perfect church, stay a million miles away from it because you'll only waste it. <laughs> so, I don't think he's not talking about that. That word perfection there can be translated excellence. Aim for excellence. Strive for the very best that we can be in God and in Christ. It's also used when the disciples are mending their nets at the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus is coming along to call his disciples. And it's there in the sense of mending, restoring, making fit for purpose again. So Paul's desire that this church would be spiritually fit for the purposes of God that God is calling them to. Aim for perfection. And he says, be, work in partnership, be of one mind. Doesn't mean they're going to agree and everything, but Paul wants them to share the same vision, the same goals, the same direction. And he wants them to do so in the spirit of peace. And that was a real, that was a real biggie at Corinth, because it was full of division. Not so, he says, I want you to be people who live in peace. And if that's the requirements that he's asking for this church, then Paul goes on to spell out the resources that they've got. And the resources. And those words that we read are quite easily the same as what Karen was telling us here. The resources that the church needs in order to grow and to thrive. Not talking essentially numerically here. But grow as the people of God and the people that God wants his church to be is actually God himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. God, and we often add, and sometimes if you say that grace you find yourself adding in God the Father. It's a reasonable assumption here. And the Holy Spirit. To know the grace and the love and the fellowship of God within us. So I'm just going to quite briefly go through these. We'll have a wee break.
don't worry, I'm going to sing some songs in between each one. Let's start with grace, because that's where we start as Christians, with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants them to know and appreciate his grace. It's a small word, isn't it? It's only got five letters there, but it's huge in Christian understanding. It's the very heartbeat of the Christian faith. It's the very foundation of our Christian faith. It's what marks the Christian faith as being totally unique from any other religion in this world. C.S. Lewis, there's a story of C.S. Lewis once attending a conference of great minds, great theologians, and he walks into the room and they're all arguing and arguing about stuff. And he goes, what's going on here? There's a lot of noise. We're trying to decide what's the unique point in the Christian faith. What's unique about the Christian faith? And C.S. Lewis said, that's easy. Grace. Grace. He says, for there's nothing else like it. Grace, what does it mean? Well, God's unmerited favour. You get these things trotted out. God's riches at Christ's expense. I learned from my mother-in-law last night, grace means God's love in action. Paul in Romans very helpfully, just a few chapters back, gives us a wonderful definition of what is grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans in Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, we might become it's a beautiful definition of grace. And Paul's thinking there of Christ, who, although he was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he, he made himself nothing and he, he comes down and he takes on our humanity and he takes on our life and he lives as a human being and he walks this earth and he goes and he humbles himself, not only in that, but humbles himself to that shame and the horror of dying on a cross and experiences a break in his relationship with his father for the very first time as he takes the burden and the punishment and the sin of the world upon his shoulders. It's a story of riches to rags so that our story can be a story of rags to riches. His is the pain, his is the punishment, I was the pardon. I was the peace. It's through that self-giving life that Christ goes to the cross that, that we enjoy forgiveness. All that we have in the past that been broken for us. That we enjoy his presence today with us day by day, giving us the strength to live and to serve him. And through that grace and that death on the cross, Jesus opens up. Hope for the future, an eternal future. Philip Yancey, who is a very well-known Christian writer, I don't know many of you have read any of Philip Yancey's books, he wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace. I don't know if you've heard this wee story he tells in it. Um, it takes place many years ago in Boston, downtown Boston, in the Hyatt Hotel, and he tells the story of an engaged couple. They're going to arrange the wedding meal. 
and they're going to sort out the tables, the tablecloths, the silver, the china. They're going to sort out the menu. And they go through it all, and it's all arranged. And they both get expensive taste. And he says it came to about, this was quite a few years ago, $13,000. And they had to pay half of that up front. And then, a few months later, it was the day for the announcements and the invitations to go out for the wedding banquet and the feast. And the, the groom-to-be had had a, a slight change of heart and a, a touch of the cold feet and decided this wasn't for him. And of course, the, the, the girl was distraught. And she, she went to the hotel to say, oh, we need to cancel this. It's not going to happen now. And the events manager said, I'm really sorry if we don't do that. Whatever the case, I'm really sorry for you. We can give you $1,000 back. And that's it. And she thought about it and she was fizzing. And the more she thought about it, she came up with this crazy idea. Do you know what? I'm going to have a, a banquet anyway. It's not going to be a wedding banquet, but I'm going to have a feast. And it turned out that this woman, just about 10 years before, had been down in a lock and had been homeless. And so she decided that she was going to hold a, a feast for the homeless and the down and outs, if you like, in Boston. And she was going to spend the rest of her money that she had for the wedding on this feast. And Yancey writes, So it was in June 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it's never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honour of the groom. <laughs> says, sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters and that warm summer night people who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hired waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminium walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants and addicts took one night off from the hard life in the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies late into the night. A modern parable, if you like, of grace. The grace that God shows to us because we're invited to his feast and into his fellowship and into presence and into relationship with him and we come as unentitled, undeserving beggars and God longs to share his life and his fellowship with us and it's free for us just as it was for those people it's free because the price has already been covered and the price has already been paid and for us the price as we read as we've been thinking this morning was that price of Calvary where Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we can know forgiveness and acceptance and welcome back into that relationship with God which we are made for and to enjoy. It's quite hard to accept though, isn't it, sometimes? I think it is. Because we live in a world from the day that I'm born to the day that you're born and you're brought up, we live in a world where grace doesn't really come into much, as far as I can see. And I think at the moment we live in a very graceless world. You don't 
get what you don't deserve in a sense. We've just had the exam results all dished out, haven't we? Down in England a few weeks ago, up in Scotland, the hires came out. And the students have been rejoicing and they've been congratulating all the hard work, their achievements, that get them into this, that or the other. They get, in a sense, hopefully, what they deserve. That's the whole point. You work hard, you sit your exam, Bingo, you're in. We give up with all the award ceremonies we have throughout the year. You know, Great Britain's Pride of Britain and all the rest, and Young Scott, everything. It's all based people who've done things that deserve these awards. They've given time and energy and money to support others and help others. And it's wonderful. And they do deserve these awards. When it comes to grace, dealing with God, there is no deserve. There's nothing you can do and nothing I can do that would cause us to say, wow, what a good boy are you. You deserve to come in. And I, for one, am really glad that my acceptance with God has got nothing to do with how I have lived my life. And I hope you don't take that in the wrong way. Because some people might my acceptance with God and your acceptance with God is a free gift and it's based 100% on what Jesus has done at the cross. And that's the unique thing about the Christian faith. And I'm so glad because I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm certainly worse than, worse than that. And yet I'm accepted by God. Paul wants us as Christians and wants the church to know and to appreciate the grace that we live in as Christians. The grace that calls us to Christ, the grace that's there at the start, the grace that's sufficient and sustaining us throughout our Christian living and to appreciate it and to grasp it in our hearts and minds. Why? So that this church will become a church full of grace people. The church will be a community of grace. We know God's grace in order to share that grace with others. What would a, a grace-full community look like? I'm not going to ask you to shout out answers. What would a grace-filled church be like? What do you think? How about we think about that? I wonder... If we're aware of God's grace to us and how all that we have from God is totally undeserved. And we're all in the exact same boat with that. I wonder maybe we'd be willing to forgive a wee bit more as God in Christ forgave us and we're called to forgive. I wonder would we perhaps be a wee bit slower to judge and condemn and, and criticise others. I wonder we'd be a bit more accepting of the faults and the failings of others, just as God accepts the very worst <laughs> in us. Somebody who knew God's grace was John Newton, and he wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. We're going to sing now, just before John Newton died, when he was blind and his, his, his health was failing, he, he's quoted as saying this, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour.
Paul's desire for this church to, to keep growing and to be healthy is to be a church that's aware of that amazing grace and to be a community that shares that grace. It's also a desire that we would know the love of God and of course to share that love of God. It's another small word in English, isn't it? Love, four letters, but again, massive in our understanding and our living as Christians and as a Christian church. Where do we see the love of God? New Testament. The pinnacle. The highest expression, the clearest picture of God's love for us. Well, you guess where I'm going. John 3, 6, for God so loved the world. What do you mean? He gave his only son so that to die for us, so that those who believe in him would not die but have eternal. And John writes later on in a letter, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, because we certainly didn't but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the love of God. And I understand and I'm glad that we have this picture in the New Testament because and I've said it before, as I look out in the world, it's very hard to talk to people at work about a God of love in the world that we live in. Very difficult. And I understand it totally. And many times I agree with them. I say, yes, you can't see it. It's really hard. For me as a Christian, in a sense, perhaps even with an eye, maybe through the eyes of faith, I can look at the cross. And as the hymn writer said, inscribed upon the cross I see in shining letters. God is love. And that's the full extent of God's love. And when we think about God's love, it's a love that gives, isn't it? It's a love that acts. It's a love that gets involved. It's a love that serves. That's agape. That's the word used for love. It's that sacrificial giving and serving. The love of God, it's careful again here, it's really got not a lot to do with emotions and feelings and sentimentality. God's love is a love that acts for the good of those whom his love is focused on. And we're told God loves the world. His love is focused on all of us and his love is constant and fixed and it's irrespective of the object of his love again. He doesn't love us because we love him. That tends to be human love, isn't it? And human love can come and go and all the rest of it. But God's love is because God loves us. And it's fixed. And it's steadfast. And it's permanent. And it acts for our good. And the giving of the gift of his son. And Paul wants us to grasp 
just that song that happens. I felt a bit conscious actually standing up here singing that song because I felt a real responsibility to get the actions right. Usually when I'm, I'm on my own sitting over there, people are high and I'm low and wide and all, all over the place. I don't know, but here I felt a wee bit, I better get this right because people might be looking here. But it's a lovely song, it's very simple because it, it explains this that God's love is, is, is high and wide and deep. And it's expansive. And it assumes that our lives as Christians, our lives and everything in our life, the good, the bad and the ugly, is lived within the orb of the love of God. Isn't that what Paul says again in Romans when he says nothing? Nothing in heaven and hell or earth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Once you're his. And Paul longs for these Christians to, to, to have that assurance and that sense of security as they go through their life. And again, as we receive and know that love from God, so we're asked to share that love. That's what Paul wants in the church. We're going to be a community of grace. We're also going to know the love of God, then we have to share that love. Of God. That's what John said, isn't it? This is love, not that we love God and say, His Son is a throne, sacrifice for us. So also we ought to love one another just as God has loved us. And the beauty of that is it doesn't mean it has to be sentimental. It's not got a lot to do with feelings. And we're maybe grateful for that sometimes. Eh? But it's to do with looking for the best for the other willing to get involved and to act for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, it's what Cam, Cam, Cam was a lot of good stuff. Even last week she was talking about the, the Good Samaritan. You know, it's that sort of love that acts when it sees a need and serves others. That's what I to do, I think, in this church that happens. But Paul wants to encourage us to go on and to grow and to be more loving in that sense. But he had not to be served, but to serve other people. Paul wants the church to grasp not only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to know that love. And as we become a loving community, but what's, what's, the, what's the song in the verse, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. How do people know you're my disciples? How are people outside? What, what sense are they going to get when they come in to us as a church? So they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. One of the early church fathers, I think it was Tertullian, Ian might correct me, I don't know, who said, talk, looking at the Christians in that time, said, see how they love one another. That's what they were known for. Paul wants that to be a mark of the church in Corinth and a mark of our fellowship here. That we grow in our appreciation of God's love and share that love with one another. Paul wants the church to thrive and to grow and to do so to deepen the knowledge and awareness of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that love of God 
for them and for us. And then he goes on to say, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as well. He wants them to know more of this, what he calls the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And again, that term is a key term in Christian thinking, in Christian life, in the life of the church. I looked at the, the King James Bible, um, and their translation is that, that you would know the communion of the Holy Ghost. Now, just sounds a bit spooky to me now. I don't know the communion of the Holy Ghost, but it's fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's Paul's prayer again. It's going to be two-pronged. Two it's vertical and, and horizontal. It's going to be what we know of God and what we share with one another. And it's prayer that we would continue to grow in our knowledge and our experience and of the presence of God's Spirit within our lives and within the life of the church. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? To receive and have the gift of God's Holy Spirit, what Jesus promised, that he would go away and he would send his Spirit, another counselor who would come and he would make his home in us. And it's the Spirit that makes the presence of God a reality within our lives and within our fellowship. And we depend upon the Holy Spirit to, to bring us to Christ in the very first place. To open our eyes and be able to look at the cross and see it not as a gruesome murder, but to see it as an act of love. We need the Spirit to do that, to open us. And to make us aware that we need God's forgiveness. So Holy Spirit it does all us and brings us into that relationship with God. And the Holy Spirit inspires us, enables us to cry in our own heart and to know that we're children of God and to be able to say, Abba. All of that's in the New Testament telling us the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And he's there to lead and to guide and he comes alongside to comfort and to counsel and equip us to serve. And Paul longs for the church to know more of the Spirit's presence and leading and guidance in their life. But again, there's the horizontal, isn't there? As the Holy Spirit comes to share God's life with us, so we're invited to share that life with one another, to know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, not just knowing God, but also experience that bond together. That happens because we all receive the one Holy Spirit. We all share the one Spirit of God, and therefore, whether we like it or not, we are bound together, folks. We're bound together in the family of God. And this fellowship of the Holy Spirit it's a wee bit more than some fellowship you might have at, at the bowling club or the golf club or in Bruce's stamp collecting club. They'll have fellowship, they'll get there, they're there because they share the same interest, basically. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is something a wee bit beyond that. It's because we share the one Spirit of God that we're called to be bound together and work together and live together and serve God together and share a vision and a purpose and a direction together. We're always agree with everything. We're called to remember that we are bound together through our experience of Christ and the gift of his spirit. The New Testament never says we have to create that bond. It says it's already there by virtue of the fact that we're Christians. We are bound together. What it does say is that we have to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul, more than anybody else, recognised how hard it can be at times. 
the fellowship with one another, even recognizing we're bound together by God's Spirit. It can be difficult because, as I said, we belong together. We don't really have a choice. It's like being in the family, isn't it? We talk about the family of God, and you know that the adage you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And so we're stuck together, guys. And sometimes I look at the makeup of some of the churches I've been in and my experience, and I think, don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor, please. <laughs> because, you know, because he brings together desperate people, and that's the way it's meant to be. The kingdom of God is not for people of the same temperament, the same age, although some people divide churches into that, and churches should all be separate according, according to the age and temperament, etc., and race. And I find that grates with me, because the kingdom of God should be the most, in a sense, inclusive body on earth, because we belong together through his spirit. But it is hard and it is difficult. And, and you may know the big poem. It's quite often quoted. To live above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know. Well, that's another story. And I was reminded of thinking of the story. I'm reminded of the story of a, a minister. Of, we'll change it from Baptist to United Free this time. Because I usually pick on my own the Baptist. United Free minister. Let's just see the ministers that are meeting with the managers, we'll pick the managers. This is not Bruce, by the way, and it's not this church. Uh, and a really fractious meeting, and he's out in the car park feeling a bit down as he head towards the car. And this Coke can's lying in, he boots the Coke can down the car park. And all of a sudden, out the Coke can pops this Jew. And says, listen, thank you very much for setting me free. I'll grant you one wish, but please bear in mind, I'm only a junior genie, that's why I got stuck in the can, I couldn't get out. So you get a one wish, but don't make it too hard, and the minister thought, so well, well minister, what well, house, new roof, new car, eh, world peace plays an end to violence. And the genie just looked at him and said, I'm said, I'm a junior genie, can you not think of something a bit easier, please? So he thought again, he said, well, could you not make my managers, my church managers, more amenable and more agreeable and easier to get on with. And the genie thought for a minute, let's go back to the first one. <laughs> okay. Now, I say that as a joke, and I'm actually also thinking of something else that I don't know whether I should say, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I've got a bad habit of doing this. I remember talking to a minister many years ago, many, many years ago, and this is not to boast in this, by the way, but it does happen. And he was telling in Baptist circles, a deacon's meeting, a manager's deacon's meeting, and it was particularly hairy <laughs> disagreements. And he said, the meeting ended with me having the guy up against the wall with two hands, <laughs> like that. And we sort of laugh and we smile at that because it does happen. But that's not the way it should. We're called to know fellowship with God's Spirit. And because we enjoy fellowship with God's Holy Spirit, so we're called to enjoy fellowship with one another. And to share that life of God that we know with one another. So what does it mean to enjoy fellowship? What is, is it tea in the back? Yeah, it's part of it. Meeting together to go out on social trips? Yes, that's part of it. Coming here, sitting in the church, yes, that's part of it. But to not go a wee bit beyond that, and I think in this church, 
we all find maybe spaces to experience this. Or hopefully we all can find space to experience fellowship in the spirit that Paul's talking about here. Because it's a calling for us to, to share our lives together, really, to a certain degree. To be willing to give to others. To be willing to offer support and, and prayer. It means being there for each other. We laugh with those who laugh and we weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn, don't we? As Christians. We're there to support, encourage, to pray for one another. That's enjoying fellowship in the spirit. It's giving and it's receiving. Be humble enough to actually say, look, I need some help. Would you mind praying for me? Would you, you know, I'm struggling with something. Be humble enough to do that. That's fellowship. And that's the beauty of these smaller groups that we have dotted around the week in the church that you have the opportunity to maybe meet in a smaller group with other Christians and time to time the opportunity will come for that sort of level of fellowship. And we support one another and encourage one another and build one another up in our Christian life. Yes, we can talk about football. Of course we can stamps if you're with Bruce or history with Bruce I don't know but we can talk about all sorts of things but we're called to be there for one another and a sense to be that that counsellor spirit comes to us in order that we can go to others as well sometimes the way God ministers to us is not through the ether it's through other people it's through brothers and sisters in Christ we get alongside and we pray and send a word of encouragement or do something for you and you find yourself encouraged in your faith the fellowship of the Holy Spirit what do we pray for for this church we pray that we grow in numbers why not it's a good thing to pray for pray for young couples to come in more families, more children Maybe we think we need to have schemes and we need to have plans made. Probably do need to think about these things. All part of church life. But for Paul and I think for all of us, underneath all of this, as Karen was saying to the children, our essential need is simply to know more of God himself. And our prayer would be for all of us and, and as a church that we would go on growing in an awareness of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and being a people full of grace in a graceless world that we would know the assurance of the love of God for all of us and be a loving people in a world that's very broken and fragile and we would continue to experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit leading guiding and supporting us, binding us to God in Christ and binding us to one another and helping us to be the people of God that he wants us to be.